the police questioned Tara about her drug addiction. Was she high and something terrible happened? Was there some type of accident with her daughter, Tori, and she got rid of the evidence? Why had she waited so long to report her daughter missing? Detectives searched her home looking for any evidence of what could have happened to the little girl. The media started camping out in front of her house, waiting for Tara to come outside each day, giving updates on the case. Sometimes she would be smiling and laughing during these press conferences, which people felt was suspicious. When police released a grainy surveillance video of a woman walking away from the school with Tori, multiple people called and said they thought they knew who the woman was. The person they suggested, though, was not Tara. This is Monsters. Terry Lynn McClintock was born on October 1, 1990 in Woodstock, Ontario, Canada. Her mother was a sex worker who didn't feel like she was able to take care of a baby, so she gave Terry to her friend, Carol Sanford, who was also a sex worker who had previously lost custody of her own two children. I'd make a sarcastic remark about that, but I... I don't... <sighs> Moving on. Carol's parents helped her raise the baby for a while, but soon she met a man named Rob McClintock. Rob was a long-haul truck driver who married Carol and the couple filed for legal custody of Terry. Carol's own sister filed a complaint with the court to stop her from getting custody since, let's see, she had a criminal record, she was a known drug addict, and had her own children taken away from her. Despite all that, she and Rob were awarded full custody. With Rob being away regularly as a truck driver, it caused strain on the marriage and when Terry was three years old, Carol left him. Rob would see Terry one more time when she was five years old during a child support hearing. Rob would continue to pay child support for Terry until she was 18 years old, despite never having seen her again. When Carol left Rob, she took away the only stability Terry would ever have during her childhood. Terry Lynn began being sexually abused when she was about five years old, and Carol claimed she didn't know that it was happening until the girl was in her teens. She said that when she found out, she did what she could to stop it. That usually meant moving. Anytime either of them got into trouble, Carol would pick up and move somewhere else. She was always able to find work because every town had a strip club. Terry also spent time in and out of foster homes for various reasons. Terry had a lengthy record with Canadian Children's Aid that should have caused more action on their part to help the young girl, but like many social services cases, most of what was going on in Terry's life fell through the cracks. She was placed in a foster home once due to Carol's drug abuse, and a second time because Terry had reported that Carol was abusing her, but she was returned to Carol's care both times. Terry started using drugs to cope with her life at a very young age and was an addict of some very hard drugs by the time she was a teenager. Terry's upbringing turned her into an angry and violent teen. A police report shows that when Terry was 16 years old, she attacked Carol. The injuries left Carol partially blind in one eye. Terry also tortured animals, once putting their dog in the microwave. When Carol got home, 
Terry told her that the dog had gotten into a fight with a neighbor's dog and eventually their dog had to be put down. Terry would later confess the truth to a family member after she was arrested years later. When she was sent to a youth center for attacking her mother, she assaulted two other girls that were being housed there. After being released, she continued to live a life of violence and excessive drug use. In 2007, she tried to rob two men at knife point, but when one of the men fought back, she stabbed him in the back. When police arrived on the scene, she immediately attacked them before being subdued and arrested. While in youth detention, she assaulted another inmate, repeatedly kicking her in the head. After that, letters Terry had written to a friend were intercepted by a guard where she wrote about wanting to go on a killing spree and even writing about wanting to kidnap someone, mutilate the body, and smash the skull into pieces. Something that would eerily match the crime she would commit a few years later. Despite her continued violence and written proof that she wanted to commit more violent crime, she was released from the detention center and put back onto the streets. It was on February 9, 2009 at a pizza shop in Woodstock, Ontario, that Terry Lynn would meet Michael Rafferty. Michael Rafferty was born on October 26, 1980. His family moved around a lot and for a while he lived with an aunt and uncle in Drayton. Not much else is known about his childhood. After high school, he started going to a college for culinary arts but didn't stick with it. Then he just started working random jobs while also making a living by conning women. He would meet women in person and then on dating websites in later years and would con them into letting him live with them and giving him money and or drugs. The relationships were short-lived as the women would quickly see his true intentions. Michael would be working multiple women at a time though, so he always had somewhere to stay and someone to mooch off of. Most of the women that Michael was with thought they were in a monogamous relationship, but he would be stringing along up to seven women at a time. Michael was also not discriminatory with his women. He dated women from their early 20s to 50, tall, short, thick, thin, with or without kids. He didn't care. He was willing to take advantage of anyone. In 2008, Michael met a 22-year-old woman named Charity Spitzig, and after they began dating, Michael convinced her to become an escort. She agreed and started turning over her earnings to him. Over the course of five months, she said she transferred more than $16,000 into his bank account, plus gave him more in cash. He was still living with Charity when he met Terry Lynn in February of 2009. Unlike Terry, Michael didn't have any criminal record. One woman reported that he had drugged and raped her, but no charges were ever filed. There were also a few women who said they felt uncomfortable with him around their children, but none of them seemed to find him doing anything criminal. He didn't even have a traffic ticket, so when he met Terry, his conning, manipulating personality combined with her violent personality and they quickly turned into a ticking time bomb. By this time, Michael had developed a heavy addiction to Oxycontin. Both Terry Lynn and her adopted mother Carol had prescriptions for Oxycontin which they would sell. She became his hookup for drugs, and he became the only man who seemed to be generally interested in being with her. He charmed Terry until she was nearly obsessed with him. He got her to the point where she would do anything for him. What Michael really wanted was an underage girl. Over the two years that he had lived with Charity, he used her computer to search underage rape, child pornography, 
massage parlors, epilepsy porn, urination play, necrophilia, and escort services. This list of search terms was found later during the investigation of Tori's murder. Michael was the kind of guy who enjoyed just cruising around in his car. It became a regular activity that he would do and he would take his girlfriends with him. While cruising around with Terry Lynn, he would point out homes where single women lived and describe how easy it would be to break in, rape, torture, and then murder them. He would drive by schools and point out little blonde girls who he wanted to kidnap, rape, and murder. Terry originally thought Michael was just trying to shock her, but it wasn't long before he asked her if she would kidnap someone with him. In her interviews after the crime, she makes it seem like she didn't really want to participate, but what they do perfectly matches what she had written about while in a detention center a few years prior. Victoria Stafford, who went by Tory, was born on July 15, 2000 in Woodstock, Ontario. On April 8, 2009, she lived with her mother, Tara McDonald, her stepfather, James Gorris, and her older brother, Darren Stafford. They had recently moved into a different house and Tori was excited to have a friend over that night for a movie night. Unfortunately, Tori's life wasn't entirely stable as her mother Tara struggled with drug addiction. She actually purchased Oxycontin from Carol and then from Terry. Tara's new home was a few blocks away from Carol's, so the transactions were convenient. Despite this, it didn't seem that Terry Lynn knew Tori very well or that she had specifically targeted her. Terry would say in a later interview that Tori was just the first girl she saw. On the morning of April 8th, Terry went to a local church and got a voucher for groceries and then went to an employment center and filled out some applications. She went to a grocery store on her way home and then she shot up with Oxy. At some point, Michael picked her up and they went out cruising. This day, Michael was ready to carry out his fantasy of kidnapping, raping, and killing a little girl. Terry described in court how she would just play along with his fantasy because it was the easiest way for him to get over it, and she claimed that she never believed he was serious. I don't believe that for a minute because what they ended up doing is almost exactly what Terry had written about. That can't be a coincidence. That afternoon, as they passed by Oliver Stevens' public school, Michael slowed down and according to Terry, Michael asked her if she was going to do it. She responded, quote, do what? This is the point where he told Terry that he knew she was all talk and she wasn't brave enough to go through with a kidnapping. Terry claimed that his insults triggered her into proving him wrong, so she got out of the car and went toward the school. Tori Stafford had just left the school and was walking a few blocks home when Terry approached her and offered to show her some puppies. For most eight-year-olds, there are two things that are more important than anything else in life, and that's puppies and candy. Terry can be seen on surveillance camera leading Tori away from the school. When Terry got to Michael's car, she pushed Tori in and made her lie on the floorboard. Then, Michael yelled at Terry that the girl was too old. He had instructed Terry to find a girl that was really young. Eight years old was too old for him. Eight. Michael's car can be seen on surveillance leaving the area near the elementary school. During her interrogation and testimony, Terry Lynn acted like she didn't really want to be involved in the kidnap, rape, and murder of Tori. Except Michael stopped multiple times and left her alone with Tori, and Terry did absolutely nothing to save the little girl from her fate. First, Michael stopped at a drug dealer's house. 
he went inside by himself and returned a few minutes later with a baggie of pills. Then they stopped at an ATM so he could withdraw cash so he didn't have to use his debit card for his next transaction. His car could be seen on surveillance pulling into the gas station. He got out of the car once again and left Terry alone with Tori. For the second time, she did nothing to help the girl. Then they drove to a Home Depot. Michael gave the cash to Terry and dropped her off by the entrance to the hardware store. She could be seen on surveillance purchasing heavy-duty garbage bags and a hammer. She doesn't seem panicked or scared. She calmly walks the aisles looking for the items she needs to carry out a heinous murder. They left Home Depot and drove to a secluded area north of Guelph, over an hour away. According to Terry's testimony, once they were there, Michael got into the backseat of his Honda Civic with Tori and spent the next couple of hours raping her. Terry said she wandered around a field while listening to terrible music about murder on her iPod. I mean, she didn't say the music was terrible. I heard some of it, and it's terrible. At one point, Michael opened the car door and instructed Terry to take Tori into the bushes so she could urinate. She said that Tori was naked from the waist down and she saw blood running down her legs. Then she took the eight-year-old right back to the car and let Michael continue raping her. When Michael was finished, he opened the car door and threw Tori onto the ground and then started kicking and stomping on her. Then Terry, the person who supposedly didn't want to participate, the person who had previously written about wanting to kill someone with a hammer, picked up the hammer she had purchased at Home Depot and beat the little girl on the head until she died. They grabbed some garbage bags and placed all of the bloody clothes and evidence into one and then put garbage bags around Tori's body. They put her body into a pile of rocks and covered her up. Then they drove to a car wash where they washed and vacuumed the car. There were blood stains in the upholstery, so Terry used a pocket knife to cut those pieces of fabric out of the seats. Then they threw all of the evidence into a dumpster and went home. Tara McDonald spent most of the day organizing stuff in her house since they had just recently moved. It was true that she had become addicted to Oxycontin, but she had recognized that she had a problem and was seeing an addiction counselor. When school got out and Tori didn't arrive home immediately, Tara just assumed that the girl had stopped and visited friends. Tori was outgoing and loved to visit people. At about 5.20 p.m., Tara called her own mother and told her that Tori hadn't come home from school. Her mother came over and they went out together looking for the little girl, but by 6 p.m., they went to the local police station and reported her missing. After initially believing that Tara had done something to her own daughter, investigators began canvassing the area looking for clues as to who else might have taken Tori. They immediately got surveillance footage from near the school and saw who they believed to be Tori walking away from the school with a woman. At first, they assumed the woman was Tara, but eventually they realized that Tara's build and gait didn't match the woman on the video. Then they posted the footage on the news and after a few days, people began calling the police, telling them they thought the woman in the video was Terry Lynn McClintock. Tara eventually called the detectives in charge of the case and told them she too thought the woman in the surveillance footage looked like Terry. Police found out that Terry had a warrant for arrest for a parole violation, so they picked her up and arrested her on April 12, 2009. They interrogated her about Tori's abduction and the surveillance video, but she denied it was her. While Terry was in jail, 
Michael visited her multiple times, and they talked about what their story would be if police pushed harder about the missing child case. Eventually, investigators found the footage of Terry in the Home Depot and they questioned her again. In the middle of May, she provided a statement to investigators about Michael kidnapping, raping, and murdering Tori, but she denied any involvement. She eventually admitted that she was the woman in the surveillance video with Tori, but she said she hadn't known what Michael was going to do. She drew a map to where she thought the body was, but since she didn't drive out there, she wasn't 100% sure of the exact location. Police had trouble finding Tori's body and they brought her back in for questioning, accusing her of lying about where the body was. It became clear that she wasn't lying, she just didn't have a clear recollection and the investigator went over the map she drew and they added more details. So, best you can, just draw where the car was, where that rock pile was, anything else around it you think is uh, important, okay? Can I, get, can I start with, like, the, the lane way? Like, like, yeah, that's fine. Right. The, biggest, the biggest jump out, like, I know the way that was, and it was, like, kind of, like, it's kind of halfway from where, like, lane way may have, may have gone in more, but it's, I know, like, like, the only part that wasn't covered, mm -hmm. like, that was still... Was able to drive on was part that we were on in that. Okay, so would there be more than ten trees, less than ten trees? No less than ten. I can say I'm not giving it out. There was quite a few like around like this side, not. And and so just draw me out the front and back of the car then. Okay, so. At this point, she had completely opened up about what happened to Tori, though she was still limiting her own involvement. She gave exact details about what happened between Michael and Tori. So, Tori comes back to the car, all right, and, and she gets into the car with Mike. Yeah. All right. Yeah. What specific sex acts took place between Mike and Tori? That I saw? Yeah. Um, Mike was sitting like this in the car seat, mm -hmm. on the bed with his feet out the back door, um, with Tori on his lap, sitting like, just like, like, I, like he was sitting, um, there was a couple, like, he turned her around one, two, maybe a couple times, um, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't quick. Uh, so if his feet are outside the door, is Tori inside the car or outside the car? She's inside the car. Like, his feet are hanging out, like his feet are hanging out, like she's not... So his feet are like, he's like kind of leaning back a bit, like but upright still, like leaning against... It's hard to... I'm trying to describe it to best. Okay, and they're both naked from the waist down, yeah. right? Um, and what do you understand the sex act between them to be? Uh, not really big on I don't really know like all the names of positions, things like that. Like, okay, but where was his penis? Uh, vaginal. Did you see his I penis go into her vagina? No, but when I took her to the washroom, like, like I said, she was, she had blood, like she, she bleeding about, like. So she was already bleeding when she went to the washroom? 
In her confession, she described Michael pulling Tori out of the car, then putting a garbage bag over the top of her body. Then she said that Michael hit her on the head with a hammer. And then he hits her in the head with a hammer? I see that. I'm, like I said, I'm going to... I didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing. I see him swing. I just like the way the hammer was facing, but I couldn't... I couldn't... I couldn't he started swinging forward. I couldn't... Just, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know if I... Whether I closed my eyes, whether I turned, I just... I couldn't... Why do you think he hit her with the hammer? In the head, because there was no, there was no, when I went over and I helped him, I held the bags for him, he was banging Tori, like there was, she was in one piece, she was, there was no marks on her body, like, it was, okay. So her body goes inside these bags, right? Yeah. How many bags do you think he used to put her inside? Two, three, maybe. Okay. And then you lift her up by her feet? He lifts her up by her upper body. Yeah, he has, he has majority of the weight on him. Okay, you carry her around the front of the car, yeah. and you guys toss her, um, and she lands between the front of the rock pile, right? Yep. Yeah. And this tree. Yes. Okay, and then you put one rock on her, and Mike put some other ones on. Yes. And you can still see a little bit of the garbage bag. Yeah. Investigators brought Michael in and interrogated him, but he wouldn't admit to anything. Like you say, this may have been a thing that uh, you just snapped and did something. That stuff happens. Or it may have been something you planned for many months and got some enjoyment out of the plan. I okay. didn't do anything. Well, that's not entirely true. Either. That is okay. entirely true. I, no. I didn't do anything. No, you can try and cement yourself into that, okay? But at the same time, you're not doing yourself any good by not being truthful here, okay? Because by not being truthful, all you have left is your credibility, Mike. That's all you have left, okay? Um, you're not the only person uh, who's been arrested and charged, okay? And uh, there's no surprises left anymore, okay? The only It's not even a surprise. It's why this happened. You're also not the why? only innocent person who's ever been arrested and charged. Well, and that's true. There's been people that uh, have been arrested for things where there's no evidence, but unfortunately in this case, there's lots of evidence to determine your role in this crime, okay? Michael continued to deny any involvement in the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Tori. The detectives described the evidence they have against him. They also told him that they had identified the woman in the video as Terry, and she told them what happened. Michael asks them what she said. I want to know what this girl Terry said. Um, okay. She acknowledges that uh, she, uh, she grabbed Tori and brought her to your car, that it was your wishes, that you sent her there with certain things that you were looking for in a victim, and she took her. And you guys drove on the highway and did the Home Depot thing, which I talked about, left the Home Depot, um, went to a secluded area, uh, you had sexual relations with Tori, and Tori was killed. So like I say, Mike, when I say I'm interested in your side, I think you can understand why, okay? If you're in with some uh, bad people, this is your time, man. This is as good as it gets, unfortunately. All right? This is it. And, uh, um, I mean, I can get into more detail if you want, but in a nutshell, that's a polite way of saying what the allegations are, okay? That's a polite way of saying what you're up against. 
I like that he says, this girl Terry, as if she's some random girl he barely knows. They were together every day prior to the murder, then they were together every day after the murder up until Terry's arrest. Then she talks to him on the phone from jail and he goes in to visit her. Now she's suddenly, this girl Terry? Get the fuck out of here. Michael isn't fooling anyone. They even bring Terry in so he can claim she's a liar to her face. Got what Terry Lynn just told me this afternoon. And I've got you. This is your opportunity. Terry Lynn's sitting right here to tell us she's a liar. You've had no problem at saying without her in the room. Terry's a liar. Yeah, that's what you're hoping. I'm not even looking at her. I don't need to look at her. You haven't been looking at anyone. I don't need to look at her anyway. I know what happened. Have you stopped for a second to think about all of the forensic evidence that is yet to come in this investigation? And your lawyer will have to deal with that. How does your lawyer deal with your semen on an eight-year-old's body? I guess That's a like, lawyer I have, have to never... deal with such things if they came up. What's that? I guess a lawyer would have to deal with such things if such things came up. Do you know how the legal system works, Mike? Who gives instructions to who? Do you instruct your lawyer or does your lawyer instruct you? You instruct your lawyer. He doesn't really say it to her face, though. He refuses to look at her the entire time she's in the room. At this point in the investigation, they haven't searched his car and they haven't matched any DNA on Tori's body to him, and Michael seems confident that they won't. He tells the detective that if they do, then his lawyer will have to deal with it. Yeah, that's going to turn out to be disappointing for Michael. When they searched his car, despite him having Terry cut out parts of the back seat, investigators still found multiple blood samples that matched Tori's DNA. They also found a spot of semen that's mixed with blood, but it didn't say whether it matched anyone that was involved. Though Michael maintained his innocence the entire time he was being interrogated, the one question a detective had was why he didn't ever offer up an alibi. See, I would expect that somebody, an innocent man, would at least be saying to me, can I call, who knows, my boss, my cousin, my neighbor, Somebody who can tell you where I was on the 8th of April, who can tell you I wasn't driving around Woodstock and Guelph with an 8-year-old girl and Terry Lynn McClintock in my car. Anybody, any alibi. Three hours people have been talking to you now. Not once have I heard you say, I'm innocent, talk to this person. I'm innocent, talk to that person. They'll tell you where I was that day. They'll tell you what job site I was on or what thing I was working at that day. We're talking 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. See, that, Mike, that would make sense to me because okay. that would mean that that person spoken to tonight, we could turn around and say, holy crap. And then Mike wouldn't have to spend a night in jail, wouldn't it? So if I tell you where I was, who I was with, what I was doing, you're going to let me go? If it's valid. How long does it take to validate that? I don't know. It depends who it is and where they are. Roughly. How long before I'm out? I'm out? Mike, who am I talking to? Where are they? How do I get a hold of them? 
How can I answer that question until you tell me who these people are? It's clear that the wheels were starting to turn in Michael's head as he was trying to think of someone who would say that he was with them during Tori's abduction and murder, but he never does come up with an alibi. Tori's body wasn't found until July 19, 2009, and due to extensive decomposition, the medical examiner couldn't prove she had been sexually assaulted. He did determine her cause of death was from blunt force trauma, the trauma being from the kicking, stomping, and hammer blows. Michael was charged with first-degree murder and he pleaded not guilty. Terry was originally charged with accessory to murder, but she was eventually also charged with first-degree murder. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Michael's trial started on March 5, 2012, and Terry testified against him. During her testimony, she admitted to being the one who hit Tori with the hammer, contradicting her confession. She says that Tori's screaming for help triggered her flashbacks of her own abuse as a child, and she freaked out, grabbed the hammer, and beat Tori with it. As someone who suffered from abuse as a child, I can definitely relate with feeling triggered by a child being hurt and screaming in pain or yelling for help, but I can't imagine having it make me want to harm the child who's being hurt. If I witnessed an adult abusing a child and that triggered flashbacks of my own childhood abuse, I can see freaking out and attacking the adult, but why would her childhood abuse make her attack the child who's being abused? It doesn't make any sense to me. The medical examiner testified that Tori had suffered from 16 broken ribs, a lacerated liver, and massive head trauma. He said that any of the injuries could have caused her death and he couldn't determine who the killer was. A dozen women also testified about Michael's behavior before and after the murder. They describe him being overly interested in the missing girl and that he claimed to have inside information about it. Some of them describe him taking them on drives that were close to where he took Tori. On May 11, 2012, Michael Rafferty was found guilty of first-degree murder, sexual assault causing bodily harm, and kidnapping. He was sentenced to life in prison with a chance of parole after 25 years. That's the maximum sentence in Canada, but it doesn't mean that the person will be released on parole after 25 years. There are many criminals who spend the rest of their lives in prison in Canada. After his conviction, Michael filed an appeal which was denied. He continues to maintain his innocence. Michael and Terry Lynn were an unfortunate pairing that fed off of each other's dark desires. Michael wanted a young girl for sex and torture, and Terry wanted violence and a man's approval. It led them down a road that took an eight-year-old's life. They were both monsters who murdered a child in order to appease their own sick fantasies. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. 
That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.